Hello, everybody. Welcome to East West Draftcast. I am one of your hosts. I am the West half of East West. My name is Greg. On the line with me is a man on the East Coast, kind of Southeast, too. Jeff, what's going on, my friend? Uh, I've been uh, having a good time with magic cards and, you know, getting ready to podcast, things like that. That's pretty exciting. Uh, we've got a couple sweet discussion topics today. Um, first up, we're going to talk about unplayable cards. And just because they're unplayable doesn't mean we shouldn't be thinking about them and talking about them. Because as we'll see, uh, sometimes you can look at a card and think it's unplayable and it will turn out to be quite playable and vice versa. So we'll jump into that. And then after the unplayable discussion... My favorite segment. Is it your favorite segment too, Jeff? Yes, I think that it must be because I <laughs> I have too much fun drafting terrible, terrible cards. Yes, forcing the issue, everybody. Uh, this is where we discuss how to force a terrible archetype in the current draft format, and then uh, we record some videos of us drafting it. Jeff has already recorded some videos of the deck we're going to discuss. Maybe you've seen them. If not, we'll tell you how to view them when we get to that part of the show. But for now, let's uh, open it up with some talk about unplayable cards. So, first off, what makes a card unplayable? Um, Jeff, do you have any thoughts on this? I do. Uh, there are multiple uh, reasons. I, I think that the biggest reason, truthfully, is probably how it fits within um, the grand set that you are drafting. Uh, okay, so you're talking about the metagame. Right. I think that that is a massive... Because some sets, certain... like A great example is um, what what is known as a grizzly bear, or, or a two-mana 2-2, two, two, just vanilla creature. In some sets, it is pretty much an unplayable. In other sets, it's a, just a solid card. And um, that all depends on the cards that are around it. So uh, those are <clears throat> that's like the that's the hardest thing to really figure out, but it's also maybe the most important thing. So yeah, what you're talking about is this concept of relative playability. Whereas like if you have one card in one set, it could be playable, but if you have the exact same card in a different set or a different draft environment, it might be unplayable. And you're right, that is kind of the trickiest uh, one to figure out. But we can, And I think the best way of identifying those is just kind of through case studies. Mm -hmm. And we'll, get, we'll come to that. But um, I also want to talk about just other factors that make a card unplayable. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is just a prohibitive mana cost. Like something that either you're never going to cast or just can't cast because maybe there's some restriction on the card that says like you need to be at less than two life or you need to be like you, you know you have to pay all this all these different colors of mana for it etc 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 like coalition victory is a card that says you win the game on it but it has a bunch of conditions that you have to meet first like you have to control one of every basic land type you have to have a creature of every color and you have to be able to cast a six mana spell or no an eight mana spell right Three colorless and one of each color? Yeah. <laughs> like, that card is straight up unplayable. Probably in every format ever. 
Yeah, just because the co- the cost is too steep. There, it's too hard to play a normal game of Magic in which that is a card you're going to be able to cast. Yeah, um, it's not to say it's never been done. It's not to say it can't be done. But that's it's not to say, that's, to say we didn't have a deck that featured it. Oh yeah, well I mean, <laughs> trying to build some Johnny deck to to make that card work is fun, and and playing it is fun too because like. You feel like you're getting closer all the time, and you have such a specific goal in mind. That's it's it's fun to do that, but that doesn't make it a good strategy. It doesn't make it a, a quote unquote playable strategy. Right, and, and I mean it's it's literally the most powerful thing that could ever be printed on a card. Yes, uh, but just yeah, it's just funny how that that doesn't matter <laughs> even a little bit. It does not matter. It's it's one of the most unplayable cards maybe of all time. Yeah, especially like when you're talking about limited where. You're only going to see maybe one copy of that card, and not to mention like any when when you build a constructed deck to take advantage of a card like Coalition Victory, you get to put five color creatures into your deck. You get to put in a bunch of like land searching spells to make sure you hit all the basic lands mm-hmm. and to make sure you can ramp up to eight mana. But when it comes to like a limited game, that becomes even worse because you can't. There's no guarantee you're going to be able to get all those types of cards. Right, right. I would love to know if that's ever been cast in a limited game of Magic. Well, cast or cast for the win, because you can cast the card and not win. Oh, really? Do you, does it just? It doesn't say it's like part of the cost. It's just if you have. No, it says if win. you control all this ridiculous shit, you win the game. Man, what a terrible card! Yeah, it's so bad. I'm. I, uh, I would like to know both because it would also be hilarious if they cast it for no reason. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I'd, be, I'd love to see the numbers on that. Um, the the other kind of shifting gears. The other thing that really makes me think a card is unplayable it has little to do with the mana cost and more to do just with the cards inherent impact on a, a typical game of magic. Uh, so you hear all the time that life gain is bad or that land destruction is bad. And the reason that's the case is because both of those things don't necessarily do anything to help you win a game of magic. Mm-hmm. Life gain doesn't help you win necessarily. It just helps you not lose. It makes it harder f- for you to die, but it doesn't really advance your board or your plan towards killing your opponent at all. Right. Whereas land destruction, especially modern land destruction that for whatever reason always cost five mana. <laughs> it's cost four fairly recently. Yeah. I mean, it was, Demolish was pretty recent, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But for the fact of the matter is that land destruction is so slow that by the time you cast it, it's not really doing enough to impact how the game is played. And, and you can kind of abstract this concept to much deeper levels, and we'll get into that. Um, but that's just something else to keep in mind is, what does this card do? Like, does this card do anything relevant? And if the answer is no, then it's probably unplayable. Right, right. And I mean, do you have anything anything else to say about that, Jeff? Yeah, like the the biggest defenders of this like board impact, like mattering, like cards that that matter, are all of these Johnny rares that uh, Wizards prints for all you fools out there that love enchantments that do nothing and things like that. I, I mean, there are cards that cost six and seven and even eight mana. That are like during your upkeep, like do something that's mediocre, but you get to do it every upkeep. But this costs seven mana. You know what it's like? 
I don't know. Like, there's only been a few of them that have actually been good cards. Like, I'm thinking, like, Debtor's Knell or something that has just crazy impact by the Sphinx time. Sphinx Bone Wand. Wow. That, that, again, was... That actually... That card looked like an unplayable the first time I looked at it, though. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But, I mean, that's another card. It was playable because of, one, the format it was in, and, two, because you could build a deck... Built a, a, it, yeah. A competent deck, a, a deck that was capable of winning magic games yeah. around that card. Totally. And, I mean, we have a lot of cards in the current set that I'm talking about. Like, um, I mean, this isn't a, uh enchantment, but Epic Experiment is, like, the most obvious one. Search the City? Yeah, Search the City. God, that's pro- that might be the worst one. I mean, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, these, these cards that literally do nothing for turns and turns and turns, and somehow they cost five... Six, seven mana, like, why are we paying this much mana for nothing? The reason is because we're playing cards we shouldn't be playing. (laughs) You can take that concept in the completely opposite direction, though, too. You can look at some commons and be like, okay, Trained Caracal is a 1-1 lifelink for one mana. Now, that's not necessarily bad for the mana cost. Like, if you're paying one mana for a creature, it's typically not going to be bigger than a 1-1 Especially at commons. Like you might one two sometimes. Yeah, occasionally you get a one two, and sometimes an uncommon creature will be a two one for one, and that's pretty efficient. But a one one for one is pretty standard as far as like mana cost goes. But a one one for one just doesn't really do much in a game of magic. Now caveat, there are plenty of people who will tell you the trained caracal is playable in this set because of the way it interacts with some of the like uh other cards that are floating around. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, like you look at that, a card like that in, in a typical magic set, like a core set, and that card is not something you want to play. Yeah. I, w- I would be one of the people that would call that card unplayable. Like, Oh, so, so am I like, yeah. I, I do not want to play that card. I, and, and like would, we'll get into later. I will play that card in the terrible deck I drafted, <laughs> uh, for forcing the issue. But, but, I mean, that's a, a literal bad deck, and I, I drafted it specifically because it's a bad deck, and it plays unplayables. So, I, I mean, it's just... I mean, unplayable is a relative term, but in general, when we're talking about winning games of Magic, don't 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 draft 1-1s for one that have lifelink, generally. Yeah, playability does exist kind of in a vacuum. A 1-1 for one, even with, like, a marginal ability like lifelink or, like, Bellows Lizard with that terrible fire breathing mm-hmm. ability like those cards are not playable like, right they're unplayable cards in limited right and then i mean yeah but th- you can't just discount all one ones for one because there are some solid ones in like they're ju- usually rares but uh well i mean you go back into magic's past you see some mistakes you see cards like mother of runes right which is just like super powerful for a one mana creature and that was an uncommon yeah <laughs> i can't believe that yeah that card's in cubes now it you feels know? so rare like how powerful is that jesus yeah anyway so i kind of want to branch this discussion out into kind of evaluating cards for the first time so how can how can you look at a card and say okay this card looks unplayable but but somehow figure out or know that it actually is playable yeah, um, the most obvious way to do it is to play with it a lot. Uh, some people don't have the time for that, to lose a bunch of games with unplayable cards until they figure out which ones are actually playable. So it's not the most useful 
but uh, it is the most uh, efficient, or not efficient, uh, what's the word? It works the best. You play 70 games of Magic with a card, you're going to figure out if it's good or not. That's true. But, I mean, you can kind of extrapolate that in a different way, too. You can listen to people you trust talk about a card. Maybe if you haven't played with it, but they have, and they say that it's good, or, like, that card's not as bad as you think it is. Right. Uh, furthermore, you can just watch other people play. Now, you don't have to talk to them about it. You can be like, okay, what happens when my opponent casts this card? Or what happens when my buddy who I'm sitting next to casts this card? Or watch a draft video. What happens when LSV plays this card? What happens when LSV plays against this card? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And kind of see how that card interacts in the game that is being played and also kind of try and think about it in in, in the grander scheme of the format in general. Yeah, I, the, what you talk about with like t- looking at other people and stuff is really big deal. Uh, I every pre-release I go to now, every opponent I play, I will after the match I'll ask them which card is impressing you the most in your deck. Like which card is, what are the cards that that you are like that are really doing work for you to try to figure out like the most powerful things that are happening. And I talk to everybody like. People I don't know, uh, even if I'm not playing against them, I'll, I'll ask them because, you know, I like to be ahead of the game at the start of a set. It's it's really fun to win drafts right away, <laughs> so that's what I do, and it's really helpful, like unbelievably helpful. Like I remember knowing that Silent Departure was one of the best commons in the set, like week one of Innistrad, because I just talked to so many people that were like, yeah, the Silent Departure has been really good for me. And that, that card was never deemed unplayable, no. but the concept is the same. Right. It was just, yeah, you talk to people, you figure things out, um, and, yeah, sometimes you'll unmask some unplayables that, that are not actually unplayable when you do that. And vice versa. You'll see cards that you thought were good and then just have them kind of fall apart in, in front of your face and be like, wow, that card was not nearly as good as I thought it was. Yeah. <clears throat> and the first thing that I obviously do when, like, a spoiler comes out is I compare the cards with with cards that were essentially the same or similar in in past sets, and uh, that is the most basic and most easy way to look at a card to figure out if it's unplayable or playable. But the danger there is that every set is fairly different in terms of its metagame, so uh, it's it's you you need to like that's kind of why I do the spreadsheet now for every set is to try to figure out the metagame before it establishes itself and to understand why like what like what's the magic number in terms of power and toughness like we kind of figured that out with um return to ravnica right away where it was was like okay three power four toughness looks to be like the that's the those are the gold standards right there that's what's happening all over the place so build your decks and think about that, you know? Yeah. And that's, that'll show you where, yeah, you can gain some value on cards that are slightly more playable or slightly less playable than maybe they would have been in a different set. Like a card like Drudge Beetle is a two, two for two, but because there's so many three threes running around and just kind of like, uh, or other cards that are similar to that, like a dead reveler, which is a three, four, a two, two is a little less impressive. Right, and there's a lot of one fours, o fours that that yep. that are all playable, and so they're all 
blocking your two twos all day really easily, and their your two twos are being really outclassed so quickly. So, yeah, I think above all, one of the things I try to do is to be very skeptical at first. Try not to give any card too much credit up front, and let them come to me. I guess let them do the impressing as opposed to me being like, oh, this card looks great. This is going to be the best card in the set. And just having it disappoint me almost makes it worse for me as like, uh, like improving my skill in a particular format. Because if I go in with the mindset that this card is great, I have a hard time kind of talking myself out of that because I want to be right. And I think that's just a natural human kind of, I don't know, thought process. Yeah. You want to like you want the cards that you thought were going to be good to be good so that you can be the guy who looks smart in the beginning. And I've realized for me, it's more important that if I want to improve over the course of a limited uh, format, I need to start off being like, well, I don't know if any of these cards are good and then see what happens. I mean, you can be like, yeah, I think this is going to be one of the best commons, but you have to be flexible on that initial impression. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's like something that's really hard for people that that maybe are at the skill level where they're they're good at magic, but maybe they're uh, in terms of evaluating stuff at the beginning isn't like tip top, and and that's true probably for almost every magic player. It's so hard to evaluate things in the term of and and like a two hundred and fifty card set. It's like holy crap, how can you really know how powerful yep. things are? But yeah, people really want to be the guy who's like, yeah, I was playing like four of that card day one because I'm awesome, you know, and it, you want to be that guy, but you don't need to be. And if you try to be, you're going to end up playing bad cards probably. Yeah, but again, I, I think it all kind of comes back to even if in, if you go in skeptical, if you go in skeptical of every card, you're going to kind of err on the side of things being unplayable more often, which is fine because that's when you, as you watch other people play, as you see the cards in your own games, like we talked about earlier, you're going to see those, the, the cream kind of rise to the top, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then, I mean, this, this applies in both directions too. Like if it, sometimes a card will look playable at first, but it isn't like, right. Can you think of, any classic cases of that? Classic cases. Or even just cases in the current set. Current set cases. Uh, while I I personally think that uh, a card that looked like something I would want to play in this set was Pyro Convergence. And I currently believe that it is an unplayable card. Okay. Now, if, you're, if you want to talk about in the sense of like Train Caracol, Chronic Flooding being unplayable, I'm on board for that. Right. But I've seen Pyro Convergence do some work, which is, I, we have, we're working off a, a note, a sheet of notes here, and Jeff wrote down Pyro Convergence for this, and I was like, yeah, I don't know, I've seen that card be pretty damn good. So, and I think that it's actually closer to the end of the spectrum of playability than unplayability than some of the other cards that we're going to talk about. Mm. I I don't know, I, it feels like it's probably good in one out of every hundred decks or something. I don't know. It just it feels as playable as a trained Caracol, yeah. Which... Yeah, the thing, the nice thing about Pyroconvergence is that you're going to know exactly how good it is based upon what else is in your deck. I mean, when you lay out your mana curve, you're going to see how many multicolored spells you have. Mm-hmm. 
And you'd be like, okay, I have 13 multicolored spells. I can run Pyro Convergence. Right. And I mean, a similar thing can be said about Civic Saber. Yep. Uh, and that's another yeah multicolor-centric card. Right. Where it's like, this is a multicolor set. This has got to be playable since it's a bone splitter when it's multicolor. Um, I would like everybody to tune in to a few podcasts back when I oh, when, yeah. when I told Spencer and Greg that it was a bad card. Or not a bad card, but but not good. And just to... I mean, do you remember how erect Spencer's saber was for Civic Saber <laughs> I, in that I podcast? Do, I do. He just had... It was great. He had his eyes on a bone splinter, and it is not a bone splinter. No, it's not even close. But um, another another card like that for me was Slitherhead. I remember seeing that card on the mm-hmm. spoiler and be like, oh, man, so much value for a one-drop. Yeah. And now it almost never makes my deck. Yeah, my first, I think I might have said it on the podcast, but I was like, this is the new, um, what is it, the mirror that deals two damage when it dies? What was that guy? Oh, oh yeah, the um, Perilous Mirror. Perilous Mirror, yeah. I was like, this is like Perilous Mirror. Holy crap, is it not like that? <laughs> God, it's not even as good as Mirror Sire. <laughs> no. It's not as good as like any 1-1 from that block. God. That that block had a lot of playable 1-1s, actually. It's true. Which is kind of interesting, but... So did Innistrad. I was thinking about that the other day, like... And this is a card that... I initially thought was unplayable, and I totally had to do a 180 on. And I, we had, I think we even titled an episode after this yep, back in the day. We did. Doom, Doom Traveler. <laughs> I thought that card was a piece of shit, yeah, it and it out, turned out to be like, it's like format very, defining. <laughs> yeah, a very good white common. Yeah, it's so absurd. And and again, that kind of comes from what you were talking about earlier, where you see a card and you compare it to cards like it from previous sets. You're like, oh, one one for one. Oh, it dies and I get another 1-1? One, one. Big fucking deal. I don't need this card. This card stinks. And then you realize how important that spirit token is, how important that ability to block twice is. Right. That was the big thing that was impossible to evaluate at the start is, like, how aggro this format is, you know, and yep. and how important card that can block twice is. Like, that's crazy good <laughs> for a one-mana spell. Yeah. So ultimately, we keep coming back to this kind of idea of the metagame and and being able to identify how the metagame defines the playability of a card. And I think that there are a lot of interesting cards in that sense for Return to Ravnica because it's not an especially aggressive set, although there are aggro decks, you know? Right. But even still, like there are certain cards that I thought would be just completely unplayable and have totally like shifted in my evaluation since day one. Mm-hmm. Like a card like Cobble Brute was something that like normally I see that card and I'm like, you know what? A four mana dude with two toughness, like and, and we had established that kind of three or four toughness was where you wanted to be. Right. Like, I saw a 5-2, and I'm like, this card stinks. Like, this card is no good. Yeah. But then you see it, be like, you play it in the in the deck that plays Pursuit of Flight. You play it in the deck that plays, that's just basically all-out aggro, like a Rakdos deck. Right. And you start to see, like, where that card has value, where its place in the metagame is. And it's so hard to see that at the beginning of the format, but the quicker you are to get your reps to get your like games in 
and and see where that card is useful, the better off you'll be. Right. And, and the big thing about that guy is that there's almost no cards in this set that that give you like huge advantage over like because you spend four mana on this creature with two toughness and you're like ah crap but there really aren't very many cards that like there's no shock so it's not like they can be like you spent four mana i spent one eat that they're like you spent four mana i spend three you know it's like okay that's fine with me you know you're using your removal spell and spending almost as much mana as me it's just Mm -hmm. there's nothing yeah there's nothing to really punish you there and it trades up so well and and obviously hits real hard. It's uh, it's yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's not great because they're much better four drops, but but it's definitely playable. That idea of evaluating the removal in a format is very important for assessing a creature's playability in a limited environment. Mm-hmm. I think we were pretty spot on this in our set review in that the removal was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we liked the creature enchantments more. Yeah, a little bit. Cards like Knightly Valor. Is, I mean, of course, you don't play them into open mana necessarily, but knowing that if you played a card like that while your opponent was tapped out, like the fact that it boosts the toughness or whatever, that it lets you get in for an attack, would give you enough value to, to make it so, like, if they did have a removal spell the next turn, which would kill it, which is unlikely, actually, it turns out. Uh, You still got some value off it. You got a 2-2 Knight, or in the case of Deviant Glee, like, you just... Got some damage. Yeah, you ball lightning them. You know, you got in some extra damage. Uh, And Go ahead. I was just going to do a real quick, uh, just the tip here. Uh, I have been seeing this a lot. Greg mentioned, you know, you don't play these into open mana. Don't don't play these into open mana, guys. Like, I, (laughs) I have been seeing it, and it's like... I'm playing a red-black deck, and I got open mana, like three open mana, and people are playing Knightly Valors. It's like, really? You did that? Okay. You know, like, that's fine, but it was very foolish. Like, don't do it unless you have to. And if you have to, you know, you have to, and you lose, and oh well, there's nothing you can do. But don't be be just being like, oh, I want to get my guy in because he'll be huge, and not think about what your opponent's going to do. But anyway. That was just a quick aside. But yeah, in, in a in a limited format where so much so much of the game is defined by creature combat and being able to remove creatures, the removal plays a very key role in evaluating what cards are playable and what cards are not playable. So if you can first learn to identify which removal spells are important and which removal spells are good, cards like your Annihilating Fires, like your Augur Sprees, uh, and I guess contrapositively to that, figuring out which removal spells are subpar, like maybe a card like Electricery, which is a card I like a lot, but doesn't have as many targets uh, against most decks as maybe you'd like for, I guess, a limited format that you're used to. Sure, yeah. That card would have been insane in Scar's block. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, like in a format like this, that card's not as good. So you know that maybe... Maybe people aren't going to be main decking it as much, so maybe you can run more of your one toughness dudes and not worry about getting blown out by an electricery. Right, right. Yeah, and, and it doesn't doesn't mean you can't, you don't you don't have to be mindful of it coming out of a sideboard or mindful of somebody having it in their main deck because certain people, myself included, will still main deck that card. But it seems like as the format has 
evolved, that card is is one that is being played less and less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you want to run through like a quick accounting of what cards we think are unplayable in Return to Ravnica, just for shits and grins? Um, sure. Is there a list on the sheet that I'm missing? I've 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 got a list, and I'm gonna start oh, reading yeah. it off. And if you have a disagreement, you just stop. And if I want to talk about a card, right, I'll right, stop. All right, all right. Let's do it. I think these are alphabetical. Uh, yeah, they are. And you put some of them on the list, and I put some of them on the list. That's true. First up, Aqua Steed. Very unplayable. That yeah, that so, looked unplayable at the start, though. <laughs> yeah. This is another one of those cards that's just generally irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Because like for four mana, a one three isn't that good, and this it has it has another ability, but that ability is so expensive that that's not very good. Right. I think and, this card might have been uh, a danger for some people that remembered. Um, God, what was the guy? It was a white card in uh, Future Sight or something. Oh, Saltfield Recluse. Yeah, I, think, I mean that card like was that. good, but. You know, go back and look at the mana cost and the, uh, you know, ability cost on that card and then compare it and realize what you're paying for here. Yeah, I've I've seen people play Aqua Steed and it's never been, I shouldn't say it's never been terrible, but it's often not terrible. But in general, it's a card I do not want to play. Uh, next up, Blister Coil Weird, unplayable. Yeah. That's Cremate. Cremate is, uh, yeah, only sideboard. Um, probably not coming in unless... Like, even if your opponent has a bunch of scavenge, unless one of their scavenge guys is real dangerous, like uh, maybe a dead bridge goliath or something, I still don't know about cremate, you know? I probably wouldn't board it in any way. Yeah. I, I've played a lot of black in this format, and even against Golgari opponents, I've never really wanted a cremate in my deck. I'd rather just have a spell that advances my own plan as opposed to some reactionary anti scavenge card right right uh chronic flooding yeah uh unplayable unless you are ryan hogan there's one deck (laughs) chronic flooding psychic spiral where you chronic flood yourself to mill your opponent out yeah it's it's a hilarious deck but it's not yeah it also features another unplayable card codex shredder it does and again these cards when you put them together can make a deck, but that doesn't mean you should be trying to draft that deck necessarily. I will say, uh, if you want to be silly, it's very hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> so, it still just loses to good decks, though. Yeah. That's why I don't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I don't. I, okay. I don't recommend it. Conjured currency. You you put this on the list, and I put a question mark next to it. Yeah. Because. I still have yet to play with or against it. I am the exact same way, and that makes me feel like it's unplayable. I think no one has ever played this card. See, I think it is playable, and I think you just need to know... It's kind of like Pyroconvergence, and maybe even a little better than that, in the sense that you just need to know when it's going to be good. Like There are plenty of decks in this format that are very kind of spell and enchantment-based, you know, and especially in the the Izzet decks to the point where you're not really playing awesome creatures or awesome permanents for them to gain control of. Like, if they gain control of your Pursuit of Flight, all that really means is that they can act. They can choose when to activate the flying ability, right? Or if they gain control Wait, of your Goblin Electromancer, how important is Wouldn't they gain control of the creature that Pursuit of Flight is attached to? They could do that, I suppose. That seems better. Okay. <laughs> Still. Yeah. 
my point my point is that when you have like I, I can envision a deck where your like relative the relative power level of the permanents in your deck is very low uh compared to like an average deck or a good deck and conjured currency seems like a card that you could play in that deck to just be like okay i'm gonna take your best card and then you're gonna take my best card but that card might not be that good it's definitely not going to be as good as the card i took from you and so the problem with the currency though is it it violates the six mana enchantment that takes a turn to do anything yeah and like i don't know it's just like if it was if it just was a control magic that cost six and took a turn to happen Uh it would be playable but not even amazing like and the fact that it is worse than that makes me think it's not not playable yeah let me put it this way i think the card is unplayable but because i haven't played with it or against it i don't really know you know, and we, we talked about how important it is to play with or against the cards or talk to somebody who's played with or against the card. And when it comes to Conjured Currency, I have no information. Yeah. And that's, that's on me. But at the same time, like, I don't I don't know if it should be on this list. I think it should be. But anyway, let's move on. All right. Uh, uh, Death's Presence. Yeah, a similar deal. It's yeah. very expensive for no direct impact. This is this is one of those cards, and this is kind of a tricky niche of unplayables in that it's a, a win-more card. Like, it's great if you're already winning. Yeah. But if you're losing and you have to cast this card, or, and, and your best play is to cast this card, you're probably not going to win anyway. Right. Um, and I, that's kind of a weird one. Uh, destroy the evidence, land destruction, no good. Yep. Drain pipe vermin. Generally bad. Uh, I don't want to play it ever. Ever? Ever. What about the deck that plays Shrieking Affliction? I don't want to play Shrieking Affliction ever. What about the deck that plays Shrieking Affliction, Drainpipe Vermin, Mind Rot, and Skullrend? Yep. Most of those cards <laughs> are pretty unplayable. All right. I have, draft- I I have drafted the- this deck, and it's yeah. fun. But- yeah, I will play the occasional Skullrend or Mind Rot, but the Vermin, again, 1-1 one, one for 1 with, like, if I, if I didn't have to leave mana up to use the ability, it would be a lot better. Oh, yeah, it'd be like a Ravenous Rats. Yeah. Uh, Epic Experiment, we've talked about that. That's no good. Fall of the Gavel. Yeah. Five counterspells, typically unplayable and limited. Yeah, and I do think this has a corner case of working in some weird deck, but generally I'm... I have... I Like, I've actually played this card. Uh, but it would... Really? Yeah, I have. Uh, it Sideboard, but brought it in, and it... It was out. It was okay. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's it's just yeah. It's one of those things where it's matchup dependent and deck dependent, and it's just too many factors to make it un- just unplayable. Yep. Uh, Firemind's foresight. It's like a worse ec- epic experiment. <laughs> yeah. Grave betrayal. Now I've played this card before. Yeah. This is um, similar to Death's Presence to me. I think it's slightly better than Death's Presence. Yeah, I don't know. They're both bad. <laughs> yeah, they're both bad. Uh, Guild Feud, maybe one of the most unplayable cards in the set. Yeah. Geez. Probably a little bit better than Search the City. Yeah, that's like flip a coin every turn. You know, it just yeah. it's just dumb. Like, why would you do that? Why would you have a card mm-hmm. that did that? Whatever. Havoc Festival. Now, I've seen this card do work. 
Let's see, this was a card I remember in the spoiler or uh, in the spoiler review that I I wanted to be good. I wanted to be like kind of the top end of a very aggressive red black deck. Mm-hmm. I just haven't played it and I haven't seen it played, uh-huh. but you you have. I've seen it played not only once but I think three times. Okay, I've never, was it I've never was it good? It. I've never played it. Uh, and I two of the times I was not part of the game, so I was just watching. Um, but I have seen it win a few games, and uh, I think it's a sideboard card, to tell you the truth, but it is really powerful against green-white if you're faster than them. And that yeah. is because there's just a, enough life gain in green-white to where like the life gain clause in Havoc Festival actually matters. And when that matters, the, you've probably won the game. Well, and a lot of the time with that with that red black deck against a Selesnya deck, you're gonna be able to get some early damage in. But oftentimes the green white player will stabilize with like a Courses Accord or a Centaur Healer plus a Courses Accord, and then you're you're kind of stuck in this weird position where your opponent's sitting there at like I don't know eight or ten life, something like that. Yeah. But you just can't do anything anymore. And a card like Havoc Festival can come down and yeah, possibly close that game out for you. Now, I don't know how often that's going to be the case, but I that was the niche I wanted it to exist in. I just haven't seen it happen yet, which is why I put it on the list. Yeah, I, it, I have seen it happen, but at the same time, I've had it played against me. Um, and I I mean, it's it looks fine until, like, like the, my opponent played it against me, and he was slightly ahead on board. Um, but I had a very dangerous card in play, which was, uh, that rare, that rare one, two that can death, right? Shaman, death, right? Shaman. And I mean, it was, uh, my deck was walls. Uh, so I was milling him. And so it was one of those things where if I milled spells, I was going to win and I milled spells and I won. So it was, it was a weird game. Where Havoc Festival looked like kind of a coin flip, and but he did it anyway because I think it was all he could do, mm-hmm. and uh, he lost. But but to be fair, like he was probably going to lose otherwise because I was just going to mill him out. Let's let's put it in this context. Havoc Festival could be good, but how many times would you rather have an explosive impact? Oh, every, I think every single every time. time. Yeah, yeah, every time, right? And that's just a common burn spell. Yes. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Heroes Reunion, Life Gain, Mana Bloom, like bad acceleration. Yeah. Mizium Skin. I think that's a sideboard card against removal heavy decks. Yeah, and there just aren't that many, so it's just pretty rare to see it. Yeah, Oak Street Innkeeper. This is just a, a matter of the creature being irrelevant for the cost and the ability being mostly irrelevant for yeah, totally. any cost, you know? Yeah. Uh, Pithing Needle, unless you're playing against some dude who happens to have like four of some really crucial activated ability type card, you're not going to play Pithing Needle. Yeah, I find those these cards are really confusing to brand new players. The ones that are like like a Slaughter Games or a Cranial Extraction, something like that, where it just like, it's like, oh, I could get rid of a card out of their deck, or I can stop a card from working if I name it, you know? It's like, yeah, you have to realize, like, no matter what, this should never be in your main deck because if you have it in your hand, you don't know what to name unless they have like a Jace out or something. You're like pithing needle their Jace. Sure, that's great, but how often does that happen? It's 
a mythic mana. Yeah. Well, well, the other fact is that you are paying mana for something that your opponent might not have even drawn or might not have ever drawn in a game. Totally. So you're not really doing anything half the time. Uh, Next up, Psychic Spiral. Milling in general tends to be unplayable unless it's very focused or very well supported by the set. Right. And in Return to Ravnica, it's just not. There's the Doorkeeper deck, there's the Chronic Flooding Psychic Spiral deck, but both of those are so, so niche and so I, just narrow. I actually think the Doorkeeper deck is a thing that is legitimate. Um, right, but, but, and that's why Doorkeeper's not on this list. Right, and it, but that card has inevitability that it just doesn't even need you to play Psychic Spiral. Like, you don't need more mill because it's going to do the job all on its own. Yeah, well, and on top of the fact that the Doorkeeper is relevant as an 04 for 2. Yeah, exactly. It blocks everything. Um Next up, uh, Pyro Convergence is on the list. We, we talked about that already. Uh, Racecourse Fury. The, there are a few of these enchant lands that are just god-awful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you'll. It, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rest in peace. Just a, not That's even a, enchanting a land, just a bad enchantment. I mean, yeah, it's funny, though. It's like, they, those are... You have to look at these cards um, and, and understand, like, that... Anytime you see something like this, it's like obvious. Like this is for constructed magic. Don't ever bother with it in limited. And if you ever see a card and think like, I wonder what the designers were thinking. I wonder if this fits somewhere in the limited set. It doesn't. Don't think about it. Just move on. Yeah. Uh, Search the city. Number one offender. Yeah. Unplayable probably in this set. Probably the worst one. Just the card that just does stone nothing for five mana. Yeah, and you pay five mana to do stone nothing, which makes it even worse. Uh, search warrant is bad life gain. Yeah, life gain and like typically look at your opponent's hand is a not a play. irrelevant ability. Yeah. Um, slaughter games we talked about that. Survey the wreckage we've talked about five mana land destruction spells. Tablet of the guilds. Boy, Spencer had a hard-on for this one in that one episode, too. No, I, I think he was just trying to defend it. I don't think he actually thought it was good. I hope he didn't. Okay. But, Jesus. Fuck it. Just incidental life gain. It's almost never good. It's just something that you don't need to be doing. Yeah. You don't need to uh, take up a slot in your deck with a card that's not actually going to help you win at all. Yeah. Uh, Train Caracal, we talked about that. And I, I think that might be the most playable card on this list. Uh, it's one of the most. I would disagree, but that's because you put a card on here that, that I kind of like. What's that? <laughs> it's the last card. Okay, we'll get to it. Uh, Urban Burgeoning, no good. Oh, it's terrible. V- Vandal Blast, like, this is this is kind of one of the worst kind of unplayables, because normally a card like this would be relevant for sideboarding. It's not even but that. They're, they're, yeah, in this set, there are just so few artifacts that you're... Not even that matters. Yeah, I think the best artifact is Volatile Rig, which is, like, not even the best... Art- like, it's not even that great. I don't no. know. No. I mean, the key runes exist, but I honestly am never that disappointed when my opponent plays a key rune, because I think they're just... If it's too slow. A slow. They're a little slow. Yeah, it's like, every anytime my opponent does anything that isn't aggressive, I'm like... Whew! Alright, cool. I got some... <laughs> Dodge the bullet. Got some time to play Magic. Sweet. Yep. Uh, last card on the list, and apparently you like this one, World Spine Worm. <laughs> yeah! I just, I have a soft spot because my, uh, my teammate in our, in Grand Prix San Jose cast World Spine Worm many a time in the Grand Prix. Uh, yeah, it's, it's probably an unplayable, but 
so cool. <laughs> yeah. So cool does not equal playable. I know. It's bad. Uh, the, yeah, basically the only deck that could play it is if you have like a million um, Axeman Guardians. So yeah. get on that. And, and the thing is, is if your deck is a million Axeman Guardians, your deck might not be that good. Unless you have World Spine Worm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't know. That's true. Uh, yeah, so that's our list. And I'm, there's probably a few cards that are like iffy that weren't on this list. I can think of like, uh, I can't remember the name of it now. The the is it card that's like kind of a foggish thing makes him attack. Chemister's trick. Chemister's trick. That's like an extremely niche card, but it, it can actually do some pretty damaging things. I think that card's fine. I think the trick with that card is that most of the time you need to just not overload it and use it as like a combat trick or as just a one-time cheap way to make them attack with something that you want to block. Totally. Yeah, you can kind of use it as a removal spell early on. Yeah. I don't. I think people fall in love with the overload cost on some of these cards too much. Like that card, like Electricery. Yeah, a big one is actually Mizium Mortars, which is absolutely oh, yeah. nuts overloaded. But you know what? If you're dying to a creature, just kill that creature. Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. Yeah, because you want to get full value. I think a lot of the the seven drops in the format typically just in any other format you'd be like seven drops, no thank you. But in this format, because there are some ways to ramp to them with key runes and with Axbane Guardians, and because sometimes the matches in this format are just a little slow, a card like Minotaur Aggressor, a card like Terrace Worm, or Axbane Stag, while you're not excited to play them, they're not completely unplayable. Totally. Because when they do hit the board, if you are able to cast them, they have a big impact. The, my favorite one is the 8-8 uh, the Vigilant one. Oh, yeah. Um I can't remember what that card's called. Yeah, me neither. But every time it hits the board, like I, either for me or against me, it just feels like whoa. Like I forgot that this was like a thing that could happen. That's not a rare, you know. Yeah, some of the kind of uh, smaller, more aggressive creatures kind of fit that same bill of looking like they were going to be unplayable, but but ended up not being so. Like Dagger Drome Imp was a card I wasn't really excited about, but now. Oftentimes, I'll just look to draft a deck kind of around that card, whether it's through Scavenger or through Deviant Glees. Totally, yeah. Tiger Drum Imp is not that bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, other cards that have actually really impressed me, uh, Armory Guard is one. I love that card. Yeah, it's like a 2-5 for 4. just feels like... It's, it's definitely kind of... Well, it's not above the curve, but it's... It, oh, I think it is. It's it's above average, definitely. I think that that's what people didn't realize. Like they saw it and they're like, "Oh, this card's unexciting. I'm paying four mana for a two power dude. It's like a pillar field ox, but it's so much better than pillar field yeah, ox." It's yeah, it's a that extra lot point of toughness better, is, yeah. is is a real big deal, and the fact that it can gain vigilance just makes it awesome. all the more enticing to like, I don't know, throw into your deck as as a way to not only slow down the aggressive decks, to, but to be able to attack in profitably while you're holding off that aggressive assault. Yeah, and truthfully, it's better in Azorius than Selesnya, because Selesnya is a lot more aggressive, but um, it's... Oh, I'll, I'll run that thing in my Selesnya decks, too, though. I'm sure you will. I yeah. I probably will sideboard them in most of the time, but yeah, it's been way better than it looked, in my opinion. Yeah, another one for me is Fairy Imposter. And that almost is exclusively because of Void Wielder. 
Yeah. And how good that card is. Getting two uses out of your Void Wielder is a big deal. Yep. Uh, I also but, I also like it with the uh, like arrester and stuff for some early yeah you know, slow, or or down your opponents if you really want to get spicy the the four mana guy who arrests two creatures sure if you Whoop. if you can get lucky enough wee yeah so one of the things I had fun with here on our, on our lists was we talked we have a list of cards that appeared unplayable but we didn't think were and then we have a list of cards that appeared playable, but we think were unplayable. And Catacomb Slug is on both lists, (laughs) and I don't think that's necessarily incorrect. Yeah, that's true. It's Like, I remember, it's one of those cards, I'm like, ah, that card could be alright. And then just never wanting to play it. Yeah, and And I've been... been Other matches where you're like, oh man, I really have to bring in this Catacomb Slug out of the board. I've had matches where it's like, I bring in the Catacomb Slug, and I'm like, holy shit, this card will destroy my opponent. Like, just I'm just going to wreck them when I play this spell. <laughs> and it's a goddamn Catacomb Slug. It, yeah. It's just funny like how big of an impact a 2-6 can have on the board in this set. Like, and But it's very matchup dependent, and it's one of those things where pro- probably should list it closer to the unplayable mark, because you probably don't want to be main decking it. But uh, I agree. I think it's more of an unplayable than it is playable. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, <clears throat> I think we've talked enough about kind of the cards in this set. I kind of want to just wrap things up a little bit so we can get to the forcing the issue. That's not that's no problem. Um, but kind of to wrap things up, we should talk about why unplayables are important for Magic. Yeah. Do you want to touch on anything as far as that goes, Jeff? Definitely. Uh, so unplayables are in my opinion, super important for Magic. Uh, it makes drafting a, a more skill-intensive process and a more, like, it, it's, yeah, it's just more competitive. It makes it a more competitive game. It makes it more of a game. I mean, without without these cards that you probably shouldn't be playing, like, you just get to take like it, it'd be like every draft is kind of like a cube draft, you know, which which is fun, but definitely not quite as skill intensive in skill intensive because you can never end up with a deck where you're like, holy crap, I only have 21 cards. Yeah, but that's why cube is so challenging in and of itself is that you have to figure out what cards in the context of a cube draft are the quote unquote unplayables, are the cards that you should not be picking and should not be playing. Totally. And because you're you're looking at a pack, quote unquote, of the best cards ever printed in Magic, or the best cards from a subset of Magic cards, whether it's like one drops or commons and uncommons, et cetera, et cetera, you're looking at the best, the best of the best. That's a lot of bests. Yeah, it's a lot of bests. Um, you have to understand, or you, that's why it's so tr- so challenging, is because you have to take a look at that pack and be like, okay, this card was very good in Kamigawa block or whatever, mm-hmm. but there's something that's much, much better from an older set or from a newer set, and I need to not let my biases from when I drafted Kamigawa interfere with the context of this pick in this draft environment. Yeah, I'm assuming you're talking about Jite, which is a terrible card, right? Yeah, don't ever play that card. <laughs> um, no, but the other thing, and, and another, like, it's just kind of on the same point, is uh, these unplayables, like, almost all of them are never always unplayable in every like instance like 
they'll be in your board, and then every so often it'll be correct to bring them in. And it actually creates an interesting part of the draft where you might have a playable in the pack on color and an unplayable in the pack on color. And you think, okay, well, I'll just take the card that's obviously better. But if you look at the the cards you've already taken, maybe you have 23 cards that are better than that playable already. The card's not going to go in your deck. You're never going to cite it in. The other card, you know, just destroys enchantments or something. Or, or I mean, maybe maybe it's less obvious that it's, like, just a straight sideboard card. Maybe it's, like, a, a Catacomb Slug, where it's, like, you know, this card is going to be really good against the, the guy who drafted all the bears, you know, or, or the guy who drafted, you know, stuff that just can't break through six toughness. And it's the, it's the better pick, and it creates a much more skillful experience. Where, yeah, finding where those cards kind of fit into their little corner cases is pretty important. Yeah. And very difficult. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, like, the, the sets I love the most are often the sets with the most unplayables because you really have to stretch and figure out how to build your deck right to where you can like end up with enough cards to actually like do what you want to do. And it's it's a really fun like I, I specifically mentioned in the spreadsheet the the set Shards of Alara, just the that one set, not the whole block. But that one set has a lot of cards that are like pretty damn mediocre like angel songs and one ones that give your five fives haste and things like that that just are just not good enough and it just made the draft so interesting where you're playing these you're forced to play some of these cards that are that are not as good and so like really evaluating things was was interesting and difficult yeah i think overall though we need to kind of stress that Unplayable cards are cards that you should not be playing most of the time. Right. And the biggest, like the big skills you need to take away are one, being able to identify which, which cards are unplayable and two, being able to identify which unplayable cards it's correct to play in which situations. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I wanted to do this discussion was that I know that like we, we podcast a lot about, you know, whatever strategy we talk about cards, um, pick, we do pick a card list or stuff. We rarely talk about these cards that are unplayable because in our mind it's like, well, you know, we don't need to talk about that. That's not playable. And I just wanted to touch on it to make sure everyone is like on the same page, you know? Right. I mean, every pick a card list we do is what's the best card in this list, this list. We never talk about what's the worst card. We never talk about, yeah, just what cards you shouldn't be playing because it feels inherently obvious to to someone who's been playing as long as I have or as Jeff has. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but we kind of thought it was important to talk about unplayables in general. And I, that, I thought it was important to list all the cards in the set that we thought were unplayable. Mm-hmm. Because that does factor into a lot of how we kind of approach discussing a limited format on the podcast. Definitely. Uh, but with that said, that's all I got on unplayables. I'm done. Let's let's talk about your terrible white red aggro deck drafting strategy. All right. So this deck, uh, I don't know if Mr. Ryan Hogan, uh, often a guest on the show, uh, I don't know if he came up with it on his own. Uh, no, I had heard about this deck before. You before Ryan had kind of gotten all the, in on it. The non guild version, though, the one that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I heard about white red aggro. Okay. Um, <laughs> even even before GP Philly, I was hearing stuff about it like on Twitter and stuff. Like it's been it's been floating around. It's just sure how many people bought in, you know? Right. And Mr. Hogan bought in pretty hard. Uh, and he was talking to me about it one day, and I was like, you know, we got to do a forcing issue on this deck because it's stupid. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, a card that um, I was surprised. Uh, actually, I, I just played uh, at the card shop yesterday. I, I don't go there often. But uh, everybody's really hot on this card there, which surprised me, is Ethereal Armor. Um, generally a card that, when we first looked at the set, was more on the end of Unplayable. Yep. Than uh, playable because it's it looked like a hyena umbra but maybe worse. Uh, and the deck that I forced and and I might do another video I don't know we'll see. But uh, it it just it's completely built around the hero armor. It's it's um so what it is it's red white completely off guild. Uh, you just you just draft in red white and you're drafting very cheap creatures. And all auras. <laughs> Generally, you're wanting um, ethereal armors because they count the number of auras in play, or enchantments in general. So, so just real quick, give some examples of other auras you could have in this deck. Pursuit of Flight uh, is the other um, most obvious one because it's another common. Um, you could do Knightly Valor. Uh, not really what the deck's looking to do, though. It's a little too expensive. You probably want to be, like, a 16-land deck or maybe even a 15-land deck if you can keep it really cheap. Um, but, uh, and then other auras... Uh, I don't even know. Are there any other auras? <laughs> How about Security Blockade? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, Security Blockade or Arrest, um, which is... You know, you're obviously going to take that, but... Uh, That's kind of the nut high of any deck, yeah. but yeah. Um, I don't know. Is there any other... Yeah. Um, it... Well, just, just prioritizing enchantments in general. So whatever colors you deem yourself in, and if in this case it's white-red, I mean, what other white enchantments are there? There's Knightly Valor. You talked about that. There's uh, Martial Law at the rare spot. Yeah. Uh, I saw that you ended up with Two of them. a couple of those in your draft video. Which was a mistake, unfortunately. Yeah, that's fine, but I mean, they, it kind of goes to illustrate what's important in that deck actually when you watch the video yeah um but yeah just enchantments on color playable ones yeah uh, if you if you were to draft it white blue a card like uh paralyzing grasp would go up in value right or if you were going to draft i don't know white black Deviant. deviantly is a card that would become more important yeah. and uh, or in general it sounds like you just want to be aggressive though you want to get as many one and two and three drops and then a bunch of auras absolutely yeah Okay. And and I was wondering, is Racecourse Fury playable in this deck? And I think it still is not. <laughs> yeah. Which is sad. Because generally the creatures you're playing are are not going to do shit without an aura. So it's like, to play a creature and then give it haste, it's like, well, you're still not going to attack with it because it's like a 1-1. <laughs> mm -hmm. Something terrible. But uh, but in anyway, the deck, um, I've drafted it twice. Uh, once is on video. The other, I actually also did a video, but I I did an eight four because it was gonna fire right away and I lost right away, so I decided just to scrap it. Um, but I actually was very close, and that deck was much better. Uh, but I did a Swiss, and so you can see multiple rounds. And the the deck just goes uh, one drops, two drops, three drops, but not very many, and all auras and maybe some removal if you can get it. 
Uh, now, the other the other way I've heard this deck described is that you don't necessarily go all in on the auras. You go more for just a lot of efficient early drops and cards like Dyna Charge as well. Totally, yeah. And that was what my first deck was that I drafted, was it was like a lot of Chain Walkers and Azorius Arresters and just efficient two drops and some one drops with... I did have Dyna Charge in that deck and some other... Just It was just a straight aggro deck that actually was pretty impressive. Uh, it almost felt like a standard deck in terms of like how quickly my opponent was down to essentially no life. Well, and how consistently you can do that, too, because typically hyper-aggressive strategies and one-drop creatures in general are not very viable in draft. Mm-hmm. And this seems like a bit of an aberration, but it's there for you if you're willing to kind of make bad picks. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to force this uh, yesterday at the actual card shop until I realized that everybody's super high on ethereal armor there, so I wasn't going to get those. Those should usually table, but... uh, I think that's a card that's going up in value in general, though, because, as we discussed earlier, the removal in the format is not that good, so you're not punished as much for playing auras on your creatures. Yeah, it's actually... Pursuit of Flight is the same thing. So yeah, I think they're both pretty fine cards in and of themselves, so they're going to start going higher in general which makes, I think, it a little more important to more focus on just being hyper-aggressive than loading up on auras, necessarily. Yeah, and truthfully, it probably just means you shouldn't draft this deck, but that's okay. Um, Anyway, so the deck wants, uh, like, the nut cards for it are, like, Fencing Ace, um, or what are some other, like, insane early drops? How about just card, like, really efficient cards like Rakdos Cackler and yes. Dryad, Dryad Militant. Yes, those are big. Uh, the one drops with two power. Just things that are that are very powerful. I mean, Chain Walkers are awesome. Chain Walker and Arrestor both seem very good. Yeah, they are. Um, yeah. Now, as on the flip side, cards that seem bad in the deck, you obviously don't really need Guild Gates at all because, one, you're not playing Another color. a color combination where Guild Gates are relevant, mm-hmm. and you also don't want lands coming in to play tapped on the first two turns. Very true. Um also, uh, six mana cards, probably want to leave those yeah. behind. Like, I had a lot of times where it's like looking at a, an explosive impact and like, ah, oh, this, this gives me so much reach, but I think I just want to not deal with that and just take the two drop. It's just kind of okay, you know? Yeah. Even seems like a card like Electricery would go up in value relative to a card like Explosive Impact just because you could play it and still play something else on, like, turn two or turn three. Absolutely. It's also useful because you'll ethereal armor up your guy and attack in, and it will seem that your ethereal armored guy will be eaten, but you'll have that extra one damage to actually kill their their shit. So Yeah, because your guy has first strike. That's a cool little interaction. Yeah. But um, the deck, I would say, just doesn't... Like, so, yeah, you could either do the probably stronger version which is not be so aura based and just kind of draft the good two drops but you kind of have to get lucky for that um because you know if anybody near you is drafting red black or something you're not getting chain walkers and things like that but uh but if you are aura based um it's like it's kind of a silly ass deck because like more aura based because (laughs) what 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 you see is, I don't know, drafting online, you get games where it's like turn one creature, turn two, 
double ethereal armor on it. And you end up... So that's plus two, plus two for each ethereal yeah, armor, so it's correct? A, yeah, and it's like, you, you'll have like a five, five first strike lifelink because your trained Karakal was the card you played. The unplayable card that all of a sudden your creature is absurd for turn two. Like, just un, like actually people conceding that turn, even though they probably have a way in their deck to kill it at some point, but in their head they're just like, I can't even fathom what's happening right now. Well, think about how many answers there would be to that scenario, and that's not, a pretty poor case. It's like Ultimate Price will do it, yeah. uh, Annihilating Fire will not, Augur Spree will not. Yeah, that'll be uh, sweet. <laughs> launch Party will, but that requires them to get to four mana and have a creature to sacrifice. Right, and if on turn two you're attacking for five, that's probably not yeah. happening. Not only just five that you're attacking for, but if it is a Caracal, you're gaining five life as well, so you're just getting so far ahead in the, right. like, they can't in the race life it. total disparity. Yeah, it's so hard to race. Um, that's kind of living the dream. But even just Ethereal Armor, something else on a Fencing Ace is pretty crazy. Yeah, you know? that's like, insane, and especially when you start getting more, yeah. Like, I've seen games where it's like Fencing Ace, Ethereal Armor, Attack, they play something that's, like, relevant, and you're like, Arrest. Now you're just dead, you know? <laughs> yeah. So from a matchup perspective, what is the best matchup, like, uh, guild-wise for the red-white aggro deck? Uh, In your opinion. That's a good question. I think it's actually red-black, maybe. Just because... Because you're faster. They're just trying to race you, and you have lifelink, and they don't? Yeah, and it's probably red-black. It's also the most... Uh, removal heavy of color combinations, so it's like good and bad, I guess. I don't know. Uh, I I seem to have still have trouble with green white uh, life gain and big creatures are like even though your creatures are huge, like they'll still like because they play creature champions too. You know they play knightly valors and yeah, and it's like if you can't get it fast enough, I don't know the deck. There's... The deck I drafted in that video god-awfully slow for what it's supposed to be doing. And holy crap, is was it bad? But, yeah, I don't know. And what would you say is probably the worst matchup then? Do you think it's green-white? Uh, no, I think it's blue-white. Oh, just because of Dramatic Rescue? Dramatic Rescue, and, I mean, they're, void wielder. they're more likely to play things like... Well, yeah, and Void Wielder, and they're more likely to play things like the Armory Guard and things like that. Things that can more profitably or more easily block I mean, your blue white is kind of like the control deck of the format, you know. And yeah, blue blue. Well, I've seen it be pretty aggressive too, but yeah, that deck. I, I agree with you. I think the best blue white decks are ones that kind of just sit back and set up kind of a, a state of inevitability. Right. The green black decks are like that too, but they just I don't know. They don't no, really have the evasion well. to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would think that the green-black deck would be a pretty good matchup as well, just because it is so slow. Right, right. They they do have a few cards that are obnoxious, like Trestle Troll or... Um, uh, what's the black good card? Stab Wound. Yeah, Stab Wound seems pretty good. Yeah. Uh, Stab Wound's good against everything, though. Yeah, unfortunately it doesn't like count... the best common to the format. Yeah, it is. Fortunately, it doesn't count all enchantments on Ethereal Armor, just yours. Right, just yours. <laughs> yeah, I had that happen uh, the one other time where somebody stabbed my thing, and I was like, oh, does this get bigger? It's like, oh, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Bummer. So so typically, how many one-drops do you feel like the deck needs? 
Needs? Uh, I think yes, that, needs. That more depends on what's your aura count. Like, if you're more... Okay, so how many auras do you need? So if you have six auras, which is what, like, I want in the deck, and I want four of them to be ethereal armors, uh, then you want, like, five one-drops, or four or five. And, and it's really easy to That's do that. of turn one, one-drop, turn two, double ethereal armor. Yeah, because that that start is so unbeatable. Like, it really is. And when you have that kind of mix, it's surprising how often it happens. Or something similar where it's like, turn one, one drop, turn two, um, pursuit of flight, okay. turn yeah. three, ethereal armor. And it's like, slightly slower, but pretty much just as good. And and uh, the one drops you can get, Bellows Lizard, Trained Caracal, those are cards you're going to have. And so you don't really need to worry about one drops because you're going to get them. Yeah. Which is nice. So real, real quick, you mentioned Pursuit of Flight. Are there ever cases where you're willing to throw, like, Islands or Blue-White or Blue-Red Guildgates in there to be able to activate that, or do you just not really care? Probably not. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I like kind of the concept of a hyper-aggressive deck like this. I just don't really know if red-white is that good. Like, I feel like you could probably draft a similar deck in green-white or in white-blue. I guess you miss out on... The big one you miss out on is Pursuit of Flight, as far as the auras go, right? But also the cheap creatures. Uh, okay. Because green has no one-drop, and green has... Uh, the two drops it has are, I, I mean, unless you get into the uncommons, but you're looking at, like, a Drudge Beetle or something, you know, which yeah. is not really, it's, it's definitely not what you want to be doing over what red has to offer. Okay. Uh, and I guess the red will provide you a little bit extra reach with the occasional burn spell and whatnot. Sure. I guess overall what worries me about, I mean, and this is kind of the case with every forcing the issue deck, is that you're making bad picks to draft a deck that, I don't know, isn't necessarily going to be better than just a deck you could have had if you if you made good picks, you know? This is the Forcing the Issue segment, and it is that to a T, because do not draft this deck, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's not good enough. I mean, it's just, uh, like like you say, like you could draft it as green-white. If you're drafting it as green-white, what the hell are you doing? Just draft a good green-white deck. It's so much yeah. easier to do, and it's such, such much a better deck. Like... I I was going pretty crazy when I watched the the video of you drafting the deck because mm-hmm. you you got something like a like an eleventh pick common bond shipped to you and I'm all <laughs> like and at this point you had one or two I think you had one red card in your pile yeah you I, had one bellows lizard and I'm like you know what dude if I see that I don't care what segment I did on the last podcast <laughs> I'm just gonna slam the common bond and just play a white green aggro deck because it's clear that people are gonna ship you those cards and then. Of course, pack two, you you open up a collective blessing, and I just groan because I know you're not going to take it, and I'm like, God damn it! This is why forcing is so bad. And I, I, I love this segment, but I also love to, like, kind of reiterate to the listeners that this is why forcing is not a good idea. This is why you should be flexible and open minded when you go into a draft and not be like, Oh, I really want to draft the red white deck, you know? Because sometimes it's not going to be there, or, or sometimes even if it is there, there'll just be a better option there anyway. Yeah, so. for this deck, for this red-white deck, I will tell you that it's probably always the better option is something else. But, um, yeah, I mean, 
fucking it's a segment, dude. And I fucking... no, no, but I, the, I guess the thing that bums me out the most is that the first time, or not maybe not the first time, but one of the first times we did this, it was glorious. The spider spawning deck was oh well, that's, actually we, good. We chose a deck that's actually like was one of the best decks in the format. Yeah, <laughs> and at so the I time just... we knew it. Actually, at the time we knew it was good, and we talked about that on the podcast. Um, but uh, it was just so silly, and nobody was actually drafting it at the time that we had to do it. Like, it's pretty yeah. rare for a deck like that to exist in a format. Like, um, a deck that's that's power, like legitimately powerful, but not many people realize it's there. Right. I just wish wizards could pull that off a little bit more often. And I know it's like it's that's probably one of the hardest jobs I could ask them to do because the magic community in general is very, very smart and very quick to figure things out like that. So yeah, it's also large. So I mean, yeah, exactly. The the thing is, is the I think the reason that one went under the radar is that it was so different from anything else they've done in Magic, except like the only thing similar was like Dredge, you know, which wasn't really a limited deck. It was only constructed, so it was never on anybody's radar to be like, I want to put my entire deck in my graveyard. Yeah, you know, and then win somehow. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like. Like, in their heads, they could see, like, oh, Boneyard Worm wants that to happen. Spider Spawning really wants that to happen. But, like, it it just doesn't click to, this will work. Like, unless mm-hmm. unless you just do it. Like it was, it was also in a color combination that's typically never good in Limited Magic. Yeah. In blue-green. And I, I think that this red-white deck is sort of in that vein not that red white in general is a typically unplayable color combination but in a set like this where the guilds are so they they restrict you so much and what into what you should be drafting that red white is is a bad combination in this format right any any non-guild combination i if if that's all you're doing if you're not like splashing one of the colors or something yeah it's 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 probably the wrong call almost every time. Um, uh, I, I did read a magic article today. I started reading magic articles again. Jesus. What? But uh, I read one by Shuhei Nakamura, winner of Grand Prix Philadelphia. Uh, what a master. I know. Um, but he he wrote in his article, like, it, it, he said like something like, this might seem obvious to you, but like you can't really draft non-guilds and it like to be consistently good uh he's like this is like there's all always the case where oh i drafted you know red white and it was fucking nuts and so good like sure of course that'll happen you know it's you play there's you know millions of games of magic played so it's gonna happen but it's not the correct thing to to be looking at yeah anyway so i i kind of wanted to cover all our bases here and once again, like every time we do this segment, I need to reiterate to the listeners that we don't necessarily advocate this for anything other than fun purposes. Like if you're trying to win and get better at magic, I don't necessarily think actually I shouldn't I shouldn't say if you're trying to get better at magic. If you're trying to get better at magic, sometimes it is good to kind of think outside the box and force yourself to play a deck that you're not used to or a deck that you think is bad. Just so kind of like we talked about earlier, you get reps with cards you might not normally play with. Um, but as, if, as far as like trying to win, this is not something we ever advocate forcing a deck that is. Yeah. You should always be completely open when you start a draft. 
Yep. Um, um, so with that said, check out Jeff's draft videos uh, for this awful, awful deck he drafted. And I, I'm pretty busy this week, but I'm going to try to record a video within the next three or four days and get that posted as well. Awesome. Um, if you do, if you want to see that, you can check out our YouTube channel. Uh, I don't know exactly how to get to that, but if you go to our website, eastwestdraftcast.com, you can find a link to it there on the right-hand side of the page. Uh, if you have any feedback on this show or just in general, you can email us. Our email address is eastwestdraftcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter. Jeff is at Jeff, E-W-D-C, and that's spelled J-E-F-F. None of that G-E-O-F-F nonsense. Right, Jeff? That's nonsense. Yeah, fuck that noise. Um, my name is Greg, and my Twitter handle is at EWDraftCast on Twitter. I think I... Oh, man, I'm just burnt out now. It's been a long day. Uh, <laughs> same. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. Yeah. Um, I did want to give a shout-out to Mr. Ryan Hogan again. Uh, he consistently does these, like... I mean... We talked about spider spawning. He was the first one to tell me about spider spawning. He's the first one to tell me. He's the first one to tell me about every single stupid ass draft deck you could ever draft because he loves this stupid ass draft shit that is like. Well, he, and he's also the fastest person to get bored with any format. That's true. Every time. That's true. But at the same time, it's awesome. It like he really expands his mind so easily, and he's so willing to just be like, "Fuck it, I'm first picking Ethereal Armor. Let's do this." And yeah, I feel like he misses out on some of the, the like, Hey, I need to learn how to draft the, the, the good decks first, you know? And I mean, I, I love Ryan to death, but sometimes it, it makes me a little crazy, like <laughs> watching him draft or like, or, or I'll just, I just won't get it because he'll draft a, a chronic flooding psychic spiral deck in our Tuesday night drafts. And I'll just run him over with a green, white, Selesnia deck and I'd be like see stop it and he'll just be like nah I'm not gonna stop and I'm like all right dude I mean different people get their kicks in different ways yeah magic. I mean he knows that he's not drafting the best deck but that's not the point I mean yeah I I I appreciate what he's doing and I love that you know every time a new set comes out I can always count on him to be like dude Skullrend is the nuts <laughs> play it, it with shrieking affliction and mind rots uh, yeah, and it's 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 not the nuts, but I, you know he drafted a deck where it worked out really well, and it's hilarious. So I love him. No, he has a lot of fun, and we have a lot of fun watching him draft these decks. I yeah, just for me personally, like when it comes to drafting them myself, I just feel so dirty when I make some of these bad picks or some of these kind of crazy picks. Oh man, I love it. I I took an ethereal armor over Rakdos in my first forcing issue. It was and they got past the Carnival Hell Steve. I did. It was hilarious. I think I took Man. like an Azorius Arrestor over the Hell Yeah, nothing will ever beat the time when you passed a Bloodline Keeper to take some terrible, terrible card for spider spawning. It was that so was, good! That was pretty rad. Oh, and that was like when we knew that Bloodline Keeper was the best card in the set. <laughs> yep, yep. I was um, like, yep, I'm doing this. Fuck it. Anyway, i got to get back to wrapping things up because I have some stuff I need to take care of. I think we talked about Twitter, the website, and email. Uh, you can also check us out on Facebook. Give us a like there. We would really appreciate it. Uh, you can search for us on Facebook or just type in facebook.com backslash EWDraftCast. And with that, I'm spent, Jeff. i gotta, 
I gotta shut it down. All right. Draftcast out. Later, people. Mm-hmm.